Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our whole panel, which means Jorna Taylor is as happy as ever across from me. Jorna's a nonprofit consultant here in Wisconsin. Jorna! Gosh darn it, it's so good to be here, Matt. Yes, it's uh, it's good to have you, Jorna. Yeah. And as always, we have Robert Craig, Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Robert. Greetings, everyone. So we're recording uh, Thursday afternoon, and we had an opportunity to... Uh, watch uh, the historic House vote. Although Robert, uh, you you were uh, in front of Paul Ryan's office during today, the vote. during the vote, uh, with one of four different events that we put on across Wisconsin today with our organizing cooperatives to try to raise public awareness and hopefully uh, get the Republicans in the House to consider not voting. Uh, but uh, no luck. They got the 216, or did it was it 217 votes? Two votes by the skin of their teeth. So, I guess I would throw to the panel. Obviously, we're all extremely disappointed. But uh, what's next? This is obviously going to the Senate. No. Yes. No. 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 Jorna, you Senate have breaking has news already. Um, I'm seeing articles as I scroll through my iPad as we record this show that the Senate Republicans said they won't vote on the House-passed bill. Instead, they're going to write their own. So there you have it. <laughs> and they have a 12-member committee that's going to do that. But they'll look at what the Republicans did, but being the stand-up stellar this legislators they are. Actually, what Senator Johnson's staff has been telling us, they'll be written in Mitch McConnell's office. So that's what this is. So as we are recording, we're obviously getting the news that that the Senate, of course, will not obviously take up this particular bill. The which, toxic health care bill. Sure, which this bill was terrible, right? Let's let's be honest. The the only really breaking news this week was the amendment. Uh, I can't even remember the name Upton, of it now. The, Upton, 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 the Upton Long Upton, Amendment. Upton Long Amendment. And uh, it essentially gave a pittance of money to the high-risk insurance pools as a way to supposedly somehow reassure people that who have pre-existing conditions that they're no longer at risk with this bill. It doesn't bill. even really necessarily go to the high-risk pools. And even if it did, it wouldn't be. It's a pittance, right? But before we before we go into Robert explaining what actually happened, can we talk about mm -hmm. some of those pre-existing conditions just so that people know what you was in like, that bill? Like being, yes. being eligible for childbirth? Um, that would be one, yeah. um, being eligible for childbirth, you know, so being a woman, but right. things like domestic violence and sexual assault and rape, those are, those are considered pre-existing conditions in this bill. Awesome. Yes. It's, it is always worth pointing out what, what qualifies as a pre-existing condition, which is the Robert extremes <laughs> that Republicans will go to, to cater to their donors and the health insurance industry. It's it is very expensive for them. You know, to actually have to provide medical care. They are selling health insurance, but apparently they'd like <laughs> they're not, not to They're ever. not selling actual care. Right, exactly. So, <laughs> it, so Jorna's point is that pre-existing conditions, a lot of us, almost all of, all of us have them. They're sort of the things that happen as Breathing. you age and live in the world. And so it is not a small thing that essentially now a discrimination can occur again as uh, through the House bill, we, we, of course, as we have pointed out, it's pretty clear the Senate's not going to take it up. But, but their bill essentially allows discrimination against pre-existing conditions and, as we have mentioned in the past, would lead to about 24 million folks not having health coverage. Well, 
I wrote a message blog uh, in January of 2016, so even before, well before there was ever even in, any inkling that might could actually be President Trump, in which I argued that pre-existing addition discrimination was the part that stood for the whole. It was the emotional trigger that helped pass the Affordable Care Act because everyone felt it was deeply immoral and uh, taking away a freedom. And my argument was is that we needed to remind people over and over again about it because that was the thing that should define the old pre-Affordable Care Act system. And of course, what I was suggesting was is that the issue would die away. People would forget that there was such discrimination. So who knew that in April and early May of 2017 that the Tea Party Freedom Caucus that was created in the first place by the generated Tea Party revolt against the ACA would force pre-existing condition discrimination back onto the public scene by requiring the discrimination again as their cost for supporting the bill. So one cannot think, not only is it unethical and immoral, it's an incredible level of political malpractice. They have now become the party of pre-existing addition discrimination. And the weird thing about the Upton Amendment is, is that it did nothing, but it somehow swung a couple moderate votes. And I think the real argument underneath was not anything about the Upton Amendment, but they were being told, you know, just vote for this because it's not coming back anyway, and the Senate won't do it. And so, and then it, and then we won't be being attacked by President Trump for not passing his promised health care repeal. Well, Jorna, when you brought up earlier the breaking news about the Senate, I think Robert, that actually shows that that's exactly what's going on here. We had a bit of uh, a theatrics here on Thursday, obviously historic theatrics, in that they actually have repealed in the House the Affordable Care Act, but with clear understanding that this isn't going to go anywhere and that the Senate's going to be sending them back something very different or, or certainly different. So let's talk about theatrics that happened during the vote. Let's do that. Uh, so I listened to about the last 45 minutes of it, and, you know, Democrats, of course, were speaking, speaking, and then Paul Ryan, lying Paul Ryan, and we can get to my favorite congressman slash speaker in a little while, but, you know, he grandstanded and talked about how we're going to be a, this is the first step in getting away from regulation and big government and great, you know, I, I don't understand any of that, but okay. Um, but after the vote, I'm, I'm pretty disappointed in Democrats, frankly. And after the vote, Democrats on the House floor, it's being reported, because I heard it and I was like, huh, I wonder if those are Republicans doing that. They were singing na-na-na goodbye and waving at Republicans because they think they're going to go back to their districts and that voters are going to vote them out. While that may be true, it's a little classless, in my opinion. And it's gerrymandered districts, and the election is fairly far away. Um, yep, and the American public has a real short attention span. And we're talking about a life and death issue. I mean, uh, that's where the, the classless part is coming from. Yeah, I think you, you need to speak to the gravity of the issue. No one was should have been, say, before the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln did not sing to the Confederates, na na, hey, hey, goodbye, yeah. right? Uh, but he was committed to beating them. But, you know, he, well, he understood look. the gravity of the situation. Right. So, I mean, this has, there's a bizarre way in which this has advanced the health care issue because Democrats did not do a very good job of defending the Affordable Care Act, but the Republicans having to show their hand 
has been golden, and it's caused this outpouring of democracy. And so we need to remember over and over again that it's people being citizens, turning out, calling their Congress people, uh, that has let put a bright light on this bill and made it impossible for them to do the ordinary bait and switch where they get away with the public not knowing. They're still trying to claim that they're covering people with pre-existing conditions, but people aren't believing them unless they're incredibly hardcore partisan conservatives. But it's dangerous. It shows that the fact that they could get this through shows how incredibly motivated they are, how they feel like they promised their base this. President Trump used every single power of persuasion he could just to eke out a two-vote majority here. And so we are in a situation where we should not take for granted uh, them finding a way of finding a formula to get something through the Senate and the House. So a shout out to all the folks who have been on the phones. And one thing that was very clear from the testimony is uh, the phone lines were jammed that uh, Congress people have been hearing. And that's both sides of the aisle been hearing a lot from you all. And that needs to continue. And actually now the focus goes to the Senate and Senator Ron Johnson. So it's very important that folks contact Ron Johnson. We'll have all the contact info, but we got to get out of here. We'll be right back. Welcome back again. It is uh, we we are recording uh, on on Thursday, and the House vote has already occurred. And so, while it is a very disappointing vote to a lot of our activists who have worked very hard to try to defeat this legislation in the House, um, we want to thank you all for for doing that. And and in particular today on Thursday, in very short notice, less than twenty four hours, four of our uh, organizing cooperatives around the state put together events uh, today on, on noon while the vote was occurring uh, in the House. Uh, those events occurred in Wausau uh, in front of Sean Duffy's office, also in Eau Claire, I think it was at the federal courthouse, and in Appleton at Representative Gallagher's office. And I know there were a lot of calls that went into Gallagher's office. He had been very quiet leading into the vote, both the original vote in March that never occurred and this vote, even as of yesterday, was making no public comments as to what his vote was going to be. It's obvious everybody on the inside knew because he was never on any target list, but it does show him to be quite uh, lacking in courage that he basically had nothing to say throughout this whole process and classic duck and cover. And then we're in front of Speaker Ryan's office, of and, course. And so, yes. the Hardy fourth, big crowd came the, out for that. The fourth was Speaker Ryan's office, and I know, Robert, you got an opportunity uh, to speak there. Uh, and, Jordan, I know your great love of uh, Speaker Ryan. Uh, but We're besties. Yeah, so I guess, Jorna, you know, this is, this is his big first really coming out thing for 2017, a co- major accomplishment. Some, no, it's something. It's, it's something. the only thing that has happened really yes and he got it by a large wide margin it appears to be dead on arrival you're already reading its death notice in the senate uh before he's even been able to get drunk off his uh, first victory party. Drunk with a vi- I think it's a victory workout. So, yeah, right? He's going to so, go pump some iron. Um, yeah, I mean, look, it, it was interesting to watch the lead-up to this because Paul Ryan was ready to promise anything to anyone to get something passed before recess, and he really needed Nancy Pelosi to be the leader this week when you watched it all happen, so... Uh, it was it was curious to watch him pander. and I mean, 
he got something passed. Good for him. I, you know, he said that no one would be worse off, remember, in December. Yeah, so he, mi- he might well be right because this may never become law. But <laughs> if, if he got his way, people would be a lot worse off. But we had a nice rally in front of his office that was going on during the vote. Uh, his constituents were putting sticky notes on the window of his office since they had locked it up and were not interacting with constituents. Shocked. Uh, we actually had um, not only good media coverage, but uh, people from Racine were coming over and just asking how to join Citizen Action uh, at, right after the event. And uh, so there's a lot of, of, act, of excitement. People were not down. People seem to be revved up for the next stage in the battle, which is but, the attitude we need from, from, from Robert, good citizens. Robert, what about, where were all the people celebrating Paul Ryan for the freedom he was offering There was today? no sign None? of support. No, for, in fact, people were, were, people were coming down the street beeping with their thumbs up for, for, that for wasn't the protesters. That was thumb, Robert. <laughs> no, 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 they, no, no. It was all very positive, actually. So. All right, so let's, let's move forward. Let's look forward. We're, we're headed to the Senate. Obviously, it sounds like this bill is dead. But we need real pressure on Senator Ron, uh, Ron Johnson. He has been a little Ooh. unusual, a little unusual in in this uh, around healthcare, where he has said some things that make it sound like, you know, he 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 understands that there's some serious problems with the, with the House bill. And we've met with his legislative director, Sean Riley, a couple times. He's been very rational. Has basically told us that the House version is constructed, won't pass in the Senate. And Ron Johnson has said repeatedly that he thinks we should slow down, work with Democrats. It's going to take a long time. You can't just repeal the Affordable Care Act. And that, and he sounded very rational. But what's interesting is that he's on none of the target lists as a doubtful vote. So just like Gallagher, yep. the insiders in Washington think it's all a facade and they think that he's just going to vote for whatever comes in front of him, but he's certainly sounding different than that, and his staff is talking differently than that, though he has also uh, refused to have any open town hall meetings uh, since the election. So it's an interesting question. I know Jorna's a close Rojo <laughs> follower, right, Jorna? <laughs> oh, I had, I had quite the interaction with him one night. Um, I, do you think he's read any of the legislation, Robert? His uh, he seems to have a challenge with seems that. seems well-versed, but I sure. don't know. He, he's... But his fallback on all big questions is, well, I haven't had a chance yet to actually speak with I, the senator about that aspect yet. I haven't had a chance yeah. to do my job. <laughs> yeah. So you're thinking that he, he hasn't, uh, hasn't studied it carefully. Even if he has, it doesn't matter. I mean, we should put public pressure on so that it does matter, but right now. Yeah, I think this guy needs a ton of public pressure. He's made a lot of these comments Robert has talked about. And, you know, so if he ends up voting for something that isn't, you know, particularly good, that this is still I, I know he was just elected. But, you know, this is an area where I think Ron Johnson has to be sensitive to this in a way that none of the congressmen in our state were because of the way the districts that's are set right. up. Senators can't and gerrymander. They, that's uh, right. They represent the whole state. And, and, and I think, you know, Johnson gets that and realizes that. He's up for re-election in five years, right? Mm-hmm. Which means this will be well played out, right? And if, if he's on the wrong side of what could be, you know, a healthcare disaster, that there will be a price to pay. It's not like he's up again next year and this won't all shake out and, you know, we'll just get through in an off-year election, right? Like, uh, so your pressure, the pressure that has already been 
put on him to some extent, but to the, to the members of the House, really does need to be applied to, to Senator Johnson. Well, we've talked about how part of what shaped this debate is Republicans running on greater health care access, lower deductibles, lower premiums, despite having policies that do the opposite, which is now clear to most of the public. Ron Johnson ran on this, and he attacked Russ Feingold on deductibles and premiums, and what happens to some of these folks, I think, and I think this is partly what happened with the alleged so-called moderates in the House, why they had such a hard time is, is that these politicians do tend to start to believe in what they promise their voters at some level. Doesn't mean that they'll they'll stand up to all pressure and that they and and arm twisting. But I'm saying that it does change these people, and and Johnson has now taken this position, and so it's a little hard for him to then turn around and say, in essence that a 64-year-old moderate-income person in Wisconsin is going to go from paying 1500 in premiums to 11700 on average, which is what this bill did in its first version. It's even worse in its second version because little-known d- discussion is, is that it actually allows states to get waivers from any limit on how much more you can charge an older person. Uh, so is, does Ron Johnson really want to stand up and support that? A few things that it's worth our listeners' understanding still need to shake out. One of the big things is the CBO score. Which they voted, they deliberately voted before because it would be worse than the last one. And so the Senate will not be moving w- without a CBO score. So we're going to get, that will be more sort of, and shall we say, bad news. We'll it'll get be, CBO on this, yes. which will be damaging. It's going to be bad news, right? So the other thing is public opinion is continually to build against, well, more support, obviously, for some of the core things that were within the Affordable Care Act that people are now understanding. And, and okay, let's say it. Shout out to Jimmy Kimmel. That video was incredibly moving, and it helped really put a laser on the, the pre-existing conditions. Save for Joe Walsh. He <laughs> didn't care. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Like, by the way, every one of them that couldn't refrain from commenting on that, complete idiots, right? Like, I mean, that's one of those where you just duck and cover and you're just kind of like, that was not good for us, but I'm not going to talk about it, right? No. By the way, isn't that, didn't that guy have uh, problems like with child support? And he was saying that he didn't care about, uh, uh, about Jimmy, his, Kimmel's, one Jimmy Kimmel's one child. And apparently he doesn't even care about his own that children. Was so revealing. Do you think, Jorna, as oh kind boy. of a wizened a political observer... That this weird thing where Fred Upton, and remember, he's across the lake, right? Grand Rapids, right? Uh, uh, there was, oh, the bill's in trouble. Fred Upton has surprisingly come out against it, and he's a, a really respected on healthcare issues. Uh, and, then, and then the next day, Upton's cutting this deal where he's putting a pittance back in for, for uh, allegedly for high-risk pools, doesn't have to go there, and, and standing outside the White House announcing his support. Was that all just some sort of weird kind of tactic to try to create some fake momentum? It was all very weird. Uh, if I were in the minds of the GOP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and, and again, he's... Fred and every one of the 20, 217 that voted for it are going to, there's a number of things that still have to shake out, right? And it seems pretty clear the Senate's not even going to take up their bill. So uh, they're already going to be hanging out as probably the only ones supporting this thing. The other thing is, let's remember, let's remember our president, Donald Trump. Who signed an executive order. His orangeness. Uh, you know banning more or giving churches more ability to uh, cross the separation of church and state while this was all going on. So under the radar, he was doing some other shady garbage. And then he's stumbling all over on what the health care bill actually says. They used to attack Ronald Reagan for requiring that the information about a bill be on an index card, 
Well, apparently Trump doesn't even have that based on yeah, the, the interviews. Twitter. <laughs> She's got Twitter. So right. but, even less than index card. But right. ultimately, oh. he's the wild card, and this guy will sell out those House Republicans. Oh, yeah. And, and whatever the Senate comes up with, it's going to be the greatest thing. It's going to be the bestest. It's going to be great. It's, we're going to be doing a lot of winning. I mean, Trump's going to get behind what, that. When did Trump <laughs> combine with Elvis, Matt? We're going to do some winning. What's going to happen out here? It's all happening. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. I'm, no one's ever accused me of being good at it. Well, I hope no one steps on Trump's blue suede shoes. Oh, we're getting By the, the way, wrap in up. my world, Sean Duffy <laughs> is from the South. Um, so we're going to wrap up this se- uh, section, and it's actually going to be the end of our panel this week. When we get back from the break, Robert is going to have a really uh, amazing interview you're going to want to listen to with a candidate for governor in Illinois. His name is Dave uh, Dan Bliss. Daniel Dan Bliss. Biss. Daniel B- Biss. Biss, excuse me. And uh, he is running on what is a very bold and progressive agenda that we would love to see somebody here in Wisconsin uh, run on. So when we get back, you're going to hear that great interview with Biss, and he's also a state legislator in Illinois. State senator, yep. So uh, when we get back, you will have that. Okay, uh, welcome back to Battleground, Wisconsin. And uh, we're at the founding convention of People's Action at the Omni Shoreham Hotel, historic in Washington, D.C. And we're pleased to have um, a candidate for governor from Illinois with us. Uh, It's uh, State Senator Daniel Biss. So thank you for joining us. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, Robert. And so uh, literally they have a situation, as our listeners know, that is not like Wisconsin. Governor Rauner is kind of a Walker clone, but he's also self-funded. He's a billionaire. Right. So Governor Rauner's idea was to be uh, Scott Walker without the middleman. So instead of working for the Koch brothers, he just kind of is our own Koch brother. Right. And so... Uh, it's exciting that that they have a, a primary shaping up, and unlike our governor's race, they have multiple candidates on the Democratic side competing to take on Governor Rauner, and there are two more establishment Democrats running already, and uh, and so State Senator Biss is considered the, the progressive kind of movement candidate, so which we think is very interesting and would have lessons for us in Wisconsin, and so I uh, want you tell us what made you feel like you should jump into the race. Well, Illinois right now is is hurting terribly. We haven't had a budget for almost 22 months because Governor Rauner has decided that rather than work with the legislature to enact a budget, he's going to hold it hostage until we capitulate to his demands for right to work and ending collective bargaining, which, of course, we'll never do. As a result, schools are at risk of closing down. Students don't know if schools are going to open in the fall. Universities are in peril. And our social service network has been shredded. So we are experiencing this moment right now of terrible, terrible pain because of Governor Rauner's failure. However, that came on the heels of 30 years of failed machine politics from both parties. Mm-hmm. Failed machine politics where you had power brokers in a room deciding who gets what and the rest of us were locked out. They were making decisions about us without us. And so the question I've always asked myself is what would it take to build the movement of people needed to take our state back from money and the machine And what I see now is a flourishing of activism, a hunger for people seeking to be involved and transform our politics. I think this is the moment to build that movement. That's why I'm running for governor. So did you feel like that Bernie Sanders in many ways, even though you're your own person and probably run a very different campaign, but 
that he kind of flipped the script because people thought that there's no way you cannot go get the big money, the big interested money, and even compete. And that's what Hillary Clinton and her folks thought. And they were shocked, I think, when he raised more money than she did. And that's because he tapped into something with a strong, bold agenda and actually asked people to be part of owning their own government and electing someone rather than just relying upon a wealth primary and a special interest primary of donors. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and it, it really is both things that you said, Robert. It, it's important to have an aspirational vision to explain how our government can work for all of us. Us, how fair taxation that asks millionaires and billionaires who've gotten away with murder without paying their share for generations to finally pay what they ought to be paying, to use that money to fund services, to invest in neighborhoods and communities across the state of Illinois, to raise wages so that people who work have a living wage, and finally to transform our political system so that we can uh, take the political power back from big money to for ordinary people. If you lay out that aspirational vision, I think you can transform who wants to get involved. But it's not just the policy vision, it's also the political vision. You have to build a campaign that other people own, a campaign that's about all of us, and a campaign that's invested in by all of us. So let me tell you a story. Um, About a month ago, one of my Democratic um, fellow uh, candidates wrote himself a quarter of a million dollar check for his campaign. And then a week and a half ago, the other Democratic candidate wrote himself a $7 million check. So that was a Friday afternoon, and I was a little taken aback, and my wife and I spent the weekend talking about this, and we decided that this is a race that's really crucial for our family's future, our neighborhood's future, and our state's future, and so uh, and to show that we're all in, we also wrote ourselves a check for $25. <laughs> and then we took a picture of that check and posted it on social media, and the next thing we knew, we had hundreds and hundreds of $25 contributions coming in from across the state, from people who see the corrosive influence of big money on our politics and want to be a part of something that all of us own instead of something that's owned by one or two big corporations or rich people. And that's a new way to fund campaigns. It's a better way to fund campaigns because not only do you get those $25, you have a committed volunteer. You have someone who wants to be a leader in their own community to transform the campaign and get that message out. And we're here with uh, State Senator Daniel Biss from Illinois, who's running in the, go- in the primary to take on Governor Rauner in Illinois. And I think that's a great story, uh, quite frankly, because it symbolizes what we need our, about taking back our democracy and what we need to do. I mean, Bernie Sanders says in his Our Revolution book that the traditional kind of big lev- uh, campaign Democrat approach has been to try to uh, really appeal to two audiences, both to appeal to the audience that funds your campaign and then appeal to the general public and try to represent both. And it's, it, it was Bernie's conclusion that that's why Bill Clinton ended up doing so many things like, uh, like NAFTA and like GATT that actually undercut working people because you can't do both. If other people pay for your campaign, uh, the people who pay the piper are going to call the tune, so to speak. And so this is also about how you run and whether you run a democratic way to where you can actually represent average people. Yes, that's absolutely right. You can't run a campaign that's um, supported by a few people and then run a government on behalf of everybody else. It simply cannot work. That's not, that's not what democracy is built for. Democracy is built for the idea that the people who get you elected then have the ability to advance an agenda on behalf of, of, of communities. And so I, I would say that, um, that we have to think carefully about what the future of the Democratic Party is if our conclusion is that we've got to match their billionaires with our billionaires. And maybe we'll find one or two billionaires who we happen to like, who we can agree with about some issues, but in the long term, if you look at where money is and where power is, and you say that we can only win by 
participating in that race, A, will be unsuccessful in elections, and B, on those occasions when we'll be successful in elections, we still won't be able to enact truly progressive policies. The process determines what outcomes you can actually achieve, that you That's need to be elected right. democratically in order to be a democratic governor, so to speak. That's exactly right. And the other part of this is when you're talking about an aspirational agenda, right? It seems like we've just been in an era, uh, the last 30 years, frankly, where our government's been beaten up, where we have an ideology on the right that is, is strangely anti-government. You would think the Redcoats ran it, and it wasn't our democracy, right? And so it's a weird kind of uh, philosophy that in many ways makes them completely ill-equipped to deal with modern problems. But then you have a lot of voters who don't buy into that necessarily, but literally their cynicism about government is so high that even when progressives get up and say there's this problem, this problem, this problem, people throw their hands up and yeah, yeah, that's right. Government can't anything right, so I'm not going to be involved. And so when you say we're going to do something like ex dramatically expand opportunity for everyone in Illinois, to do great things again in Illinois, Wisconsin, mm -hmm. other states, that's a faith in our democracy to achieve those great things. And it, it's based on the idea, I think, that it's not that there's some natural thing preventing us, it's us that are preventing us. And some ways, as Van Jones said when we interviewed him earlier on the Battleground with Pots and Pot uh, here, uh, that it's a crisis of spirit. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, so you're exactly right. And, and listen, I'll be the first to admit that the track record of Illinois government has justified people's cynicism. Mm -hmm. I think we've broken the world record for consecutive gubernatorial incarceration. We have a I long... Think it was three in a row, right? I or... mean, well, that was a while. More yeah. recently, too. Uh, okay. But we, we have a long history of machine politics with corruption embedded in it where most people don't benefit and a few people do benefit. And so then most people look at that and say, that must mean that government is screwed up. Well, as you say, what that really means is that we have to take our government back and make it work on behalf of all of us. Now, you mentioned Bernie earlier. I think one thing that Bernie understands instinctively that more Democrats need to learn is that what you have to do is explain in simple, clear ways how government can improve lives. He said we're going to make tuition free. That's smart public policy. It's a sound public investment, but it's also a simple thing that it's not convoluted. It doesn't require a seven-step mechanism. He's saying we're going to do this one thing, and guess what? You know instantly that if we succeed in doing it, your life is going to get easier. We have to have more policies like that that connect directly to the struggles that people are experiencing in their day-to-day -day lives and don't require a leap of faith where someone says, well, gosh, I guess I hope that maybe if you enact that, then 20 years from now, something might be a little bit better. And even if you understand what it is, we have Democrats in Wisconsin that will talk in the legislature about how they have 50 jobs bills. No one knows what these jobs bills are. No one has any faith that they're going to do anything. In fact, most of them wouldn't. So the public is kind of right about that. Whereas if you're Bernie Sanders and you say, okay, free college tuition, when we, we have a situation where you, most people think you can't, you can't even live the American dream without at least an associate's degree, if not a bachelor's degree, but we don't provide it. And people say, oh, you can't afford it. He goes, well, why can't we have a very small transaction tax on Wall Street? So we also end I've given dissatisfied speculation. So he shows it's possible. It's just us not doing it. And it, we have something that people realize in their gut would greatly expand opportunity and improve people's lives. That's right. The people just know it. People know it because they're right now paying for college or they're paying for for their children's college, or they're still paying off their loans. Or they can't imagine going because, or, or uh, because they it's can't so expensive. imagine going. Right. Or in Illinois, in Illinois, they started going because there were promises of tuition assistance from the state, and now that those promises are likely to be broken, they've dropped out because they can't afford it anymore. Imagine such a thing. So, yes, people experience this in their daily lives and they see the connection between the inability to afford college and the inability to have a truly middle class life. 
And the notion that we could just fix it today by making the decision to do what's right transforms people's sense of what government might do. And I think makes them realize it's us that are the problem and the people who tell us politicians in both parties that great things aren't possible anymore when we're as rich a country as we've ever been. That's right. You know, Illinois, we, we've got these huge budget problems and, and people say we can't afford anything and you go to downtown Chicago and there's nothing but affluence. What we need to right. do is tap into some of that by asking those who have benefited from all this economic growth to finally pay their share. Right. And people want that kind of fairness. So we're going to take a break on Battleground Wisconsin. When we come back, I want to ask Senator Biss about, uh, quite frankly, how Illinois and Wisconsin can work better together, especially if we elect a progressive governor in Wisconsin and we elect Governor Biss in Illinois. So we'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin, and we're uh, broadcasting from Washington, D.C., from the founding convention of People's Action. We are continuing interview with uh, State Senator Daniel Biss, who is running uh, for governor in Illinois to take on the Scott Walker kind of imitator, uh, Governor Rauner in Illinois. And what's interesting is Governor Walker takes a lot of credit for trying to poach jobs from Illinois. So he, and you know, there's a healthy Illinois-Wisconsin thing around the Packers and the Bears already, but takes the position that we need to bribe companies with huge tax incentives, and somehow we're making something good happen if we get a company to move a couple miles from Lake County in Illinois over the border into Kenosha County in Wisconsin. Uh, quite frankly, the same people are probably working there. We just, uh, we just uh, bid against you know, the, our, our, our sister state, and simply either way, simply the state's taxpayers are the losers. We have less tax pays, but we haven't really gained anything. So uh, what was your reaction to that kind of uh, job poaching back and forth between Illinois and Wisconsin? And this is true nationally. Yeah, well, my reaction is that you described it literally perfectly, that it is, it is um, the only thing that that does is hurt every other taxpayer. The only thing that does is perpetuate a race to the bottom where the companies that are big enough that they have leverage can make sure they're paying less and less and less while they hop back and forth across the border waiting to get better and better and better offers from each government and all the rest of us are left either paying more or else seeing our schools defunded. It's a terrible, uh, terrible economic development strategy, if you could even call it a strategy. It's mostly a public relations strategy that Scott Walker has used to uh, make it seem as though his uh, union-busting policies are good for economic activity when in fact they are not. So what we need instead of that kind of um, behavior, which I was going to call zero-sum behavior, but actually it's negative-sum behavior, right. uh, what we need is a collaboration around progressive policies. What we need is a governor of Illinois and a governor of Wisconsin who say, listen, we are both states with the opportunity, if we invest properly, to have remarkable education systems from birth through graduate work. Yeah. We are op have the opportunity to work together to educate our populations, to have the kind of thriving workforce that creates true, durable economic growth. We have the opportunity to partner on infrastructure projects, to partner on rail projects between Milwaukee and Chicago and the various other uh, economic population centers to strengthen our regional ability to collaborate. And we have the opportunity to design tax policies that instead of 
punishing our own citizens on behalf of big business, we could collaborate to support ordinary people and make sure that business is paying its share. These things could all be done if we, A, had progressive governors in both states, and B, had the commitment to collaborate, knowing that we're both better off when we're both better off. Right now, we're heading in the exact opposite direction on both sides of the border. So um, when we, in fact, worked on a bill with uh, former state representative Mandela Barnes, who's mm -hmm. here at the conference, one mm -hmm. of our members, where because the state doesn't want to unilaterally disarm, where states uh, like Illinois and Wisconsin could sign agreements, kind of no-rate agreements, where we're not going to bid for your companies and you're not going to bid for ours, and then we're going to save the money and we're going to invest in education, we're going to invest in infrastructure. It's interesting that uh, UNESCO, the, the economic arm of, of the UN, actually did a study that concluded that the Milwaukee metro area and Chicago metro area are actually the same metro area. Exactly. Yet we have all of these municipal divisions where there's no cooperation at all, where we could be building that whole area up and down Lake Michigan much more than we are if we had a unified economic strategy that was actually looking out for the interest of workers and average people and expanding opportunity. You bet. And I would just add it goes all the way into Indiana through mm -hmm. Gary. Yes. And instead of having these states sniping at each other and playing political games with each other, we should be cooperating and collaborating on behalf of our actual residents, not a couple big businesses that know how to bribe us. So, well, we would love to have you as governor in Illinois to work on all this with, and we could work with our People's Action, you know, uh, brothers and sisters in Chicago on a, on a joint strategy like this. Let's talk a little bit, you know, all the pundits ever want to talk about is viability. And you talked uh, in our last segment about how much money uh, your opponents have. You know, in Wisconsin, there's a precedent where Russ Feingold was given originally no chance of winning his first U.S. Senate primary. And there were two uh, very big money candidates, uh, Moody and Chakota. And uh, Feingold ended up running a very quirky campaign that got attention and kind of coming up between the middle and winning decisively against two candidates that people probably couldn't beat. And in, in Illinois, even though I know you'd never want to compare yourself, it's dangerous, to Barack Obama, he should never have won by, the, by, according to the pundits, the U.S. Senate primary that he won, right? No, that's right. I think that the pundits uh, have a pretty small and cramped vision of what politics can be. I think the notion that aspirational politics can be used to build movements that transform our system is something that's out of the formula that pundits ordinarily use. And I think pundits especially have missed the way the ground is shifting right now. And it's shifting actually in multiple beautifully interlocking ways. Part of it is what ca came in the wake of the Bernie campaign and in Chicago, the Chewy Garcia for yep. mayor campaign, truly populist, progressive, grassroots movement campaigns that didn't quite win, but that, that brought thousands and thousands of new people into the process who are committed, trained, and remarkable activists today. Part of it is the anger after the Trump election where people from actually every wing of the Democratic Party are now demonstrating in the streets as, as new activist movements demanding change. I don't think this is a moment where the people are crying out for the nearest billionaire. I think this is a moment where the people are crying out for someone who understands movements, who believes in the people, who wants a grassroots campaign that listens and empowers, and most importantly, is based upon an aspiration for what progressive economic policies can do for ordinary people. And you know, uh, we in Wisconsin, are, I think a lot of our Democratic operatives are looking for the next millionaire uh, to run against Governor Walker, even though uh, they found a millionaire last time to run against Walker in 2014, uh, Mary Burke, who was a... I mean, I met her. I think she was a well-intended person, but she just had trouble seeming to stand for the average person, right? No, even though she was in it for the right reasons. And this whole model that we just need millionaires 
it doesn't that doesn't seem to take back our our our, our democratic politics, our government. If we can demonstrate that through small donor contributions you can win, then we've essentially disempowered all of the moneyed interest and the, and the wealthy people that currently dominate our political system and cause some political scientists to call, including some at Northwestern, right. uh, to call it a plutocracy, not a democracy. That's right, and and we, you know, a lot of this is on us as a party, right? We know where the Republicans are, right? We know where they are with big money. It's no surprise that we have a billionaire governor in Illinois who is interested in union busting because the entire Republican Party now is funded by billionaires who are interested in union busting. And the Democrats get to decide, are we going to say, if you can't beat them, join them? Or are we going to say, God damn it, we can beat them? And I think that if we pick option A, then we risk allowing ourselves to become a plutocracy or an oligarchy. But we can pick option B. People are hungry for change. People are hungry for policies that empower ordinary people across the state of Illinois and across the country. People are hungry for a system that asks those who have benefited from economic growth for generations and have not paid their share to finally pay their share so we can afford schools that are excellent in every neighborhood, not just a few, so that we can ask, allow every single person to afford higher education, so that we have childcare for all. These are basic, simple things. They're not radical. They're not rocket science. They're just simple things that come from the principle that what we need to do as a government is invest in all of us. I couldn't agree more. And uh, let me, you know, Illinois politics are very different than Wisconsin's, and you're not a purple state. Uh, You're more like Maryland or Massachusetts. It's more of a one-party Democratic state that often elects uh, Republican governors because the machine and the establishment tends to run amok. And so the only way to, uh, to oppose it is to vote for a Republican. And that's really, in ways, how you had Rauner. So if you win... You, you, can, you have a free shot Democratic primary, and then Rauner, I think, you destroy if there's a general election with a real reform candidate. It's why Trump probably wouldn't have beaten Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Sherrod Brown. Uh, but then you end up with uh, wor- having to work with, uh, with Michael Madigan, right, and the, and the Democratic machine. So that'll, that'll be the first big challenge, but that's more like the early progressive era because a lot of progressive that's governors right. took over and then faced down their own machines, so to speak, once they were elected. That's right. And I, I think there's a few things here. First of all, we have to be honest about what the Democratic machine has done wrong. Mike Madigan, our Speaker of the House, has been there too long. He's too powerful. And uh, that's something that I'm saying openly in this campaign, even though I'm running in a Democratic primary, because we have to be honest about what we've done wrong if we want to be clear about how we're going to do right. But I also think that it's not about one person. It's about a system. It's about a system where a few people have political power and the rest of us are locked out of the room. And the way to fix that is to build a movement of people demanding more from their state government. If this campaign is going to be successful, it'll be because we've built that movement. That movement had better not close up shop the day after the election. That movement will be needed to push the legislature to advance bold, progressive policies and to do, them, to do so quickly. And I think that that's really what this campaign, that's what makes this campaign so exciting. It's not about getting more votes than somebody else on election day. It's about building the political power in the hands of people across the state, which will be needed not just for an election, but to transform our state going forward. I can just say in closing that just based on our two segments that I think you understand the movement moment we're in and, and how to run this kind of campaign, that, that uh, whatever the pundits think, that I think you have a real chance of victory just because of the way you're going to run and, and you're articulating what a whole lot of other people 
are thinking right now. And, you know, it reminds me that I met Eric Schneiderman, the Attorney General of New York, at a Citizen Action of New York event a couple years ago, and he was telling me at dinner that uh, basically he thought the other state senators, when he was a state senator, were crazy because he had all these organized progressives and strong groups, and they weren't working with them. They just were running their own little programs. And in a way, if you can come and, and, and work with others who have built power, built all constituencies, then you have this built-in power that can't be measured in campaign finance reports. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And, and by the way, we shouldn't be building our own silos. We should be collaborating, not just because it's the nice thing to do, but it makes us all more powerful. And the, the habit on the Democratic Party to, to, be, to exist in narrow silos and ignore political power built on the outside by activists is not only um, bad for the progressive movement, it's self-defeating for the Democratic Party. So, well, I hope you'll uh, give us an interview when you're governor. I look forward to uh, it. So gov when f future Governor Daniel Biss, is, uh, we will we'll hold him to that. I'll be here. Uh, so thank you very much. And we should, uh, we'll, I think we actually should try to check in with you during the campaign. Uh, thank you, Robert. I look forward to it. Thank you very much for joining us. This is, this is Battleground Wisconsin.